Örskische jenen kort, hallo rökte is er ere kjasse, er se jene iljokkese, er guini kor og fadagas akka hoirehe, er guini oga. Kvinnsje firkin oha sarum hene sarum avan kele, saivin falsi kjale gare rov gleere go oras nuktron. Your Excellency, Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, Excellencies, all minister, distinguished guests, and above all, so many young people, members of your families, have come with you. It is my very great pleasure to welcome you to Orsenuktron, and may I wish each and every one of you, and through you, and your heads of state, and to all the citizens of your countries, for 2019, a year of renewed international cooperation, and progress and health and happiness in our national and shared endeavours. May I thank His Excellency, the Most Reverend Archbishop Akolo, Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, for his warm words just now and his good wishes for the new year. And I congratulate him on his use of our ancient language, Barbanak. <laughs> and this year I have decided to break with tradition and to commence my speech with a toast. So may I uh, propose a toast now to the heads of state here represented? To the heads of state here represented. Excellencies and distinguished guests, five months ago I had the honour of welcoming His Holiness Pope Francis to Oris and Uktroin. And at this dangerous moment in the history of our planet and our people, I have to, it reminds me that how Pope Francis has been a consistent and forceful voice for peace and justice, offering intellectual and moral leadership to a world that is desperately in need of both. It was a pleasure for me to continue our previous discussions on the importance of the meaningful pursuit of a just international order. Social cohesion, solidarity, human rights, all of which must be at the heart of our political and personal responses to the current challenges facing global communities. And I so share his belief that we must all work to resist a culture of indifference to these challenges. Dear friends, I was honoured that so many of you as well could attend the centenary of the inaugural meeting of the first Thoilerin at the Mansion House, which was celebrated last week. That supreme act of self-determination in January 1919 was for us Irish people a vital step in a long journey towards national freedom. It asserted the right to national self-determination and in doing so invoked the ideals of popular sovereignty and democratic self-government. The first Dáil Éireann sought to take Ireland's place in the new world, and one of the first acts of the Dáil was to send envoys to advocate for Ireland at the Paris Peace Conference, which was meeting to formally end the ceasefire declared by the Armistice of 1918. Many members of the first Dole had invested their hopes in the peace conference as a means to peaceably achieve an independent Irish Republic. Despite the looming presence of the British at the conference, this was no idle fantasy, for Ireland had long found sympathy and solidarity and support in countries such as France and Italy, 
whether from French Jacobins or Mazzini, and the Republic of young, the young Republic, the Republicans of young Italy. Above all, the Irish delegation looked to President Wilson and beyond him to Irish America for support. So the year 1919, then, marks not only the commencement of our War of Independence, but, if you like, uh, the doyle expression of it, but announces also the beginning of Irish diplomacy in new circumstances by a new independent Irish state. That first Irish delegation that was sent to Paris was led by a doyle deputy who would go on to become our second president, Chantier Kelly. He, like his comrades, believed that Ireland should have an independent foreign policy, one that reflected the values and aspirations of the Irish people, and those values were encapsulated in one of the documents ratified by the meeting of the First Thole, the message to the free nations of the world. And last Monday, you will have heard it spoken in Irish and English, the first and second languages of the Republic, as declared, and French, the language of international diplomacy. Its words still echo through the years, not only as a demand to enter the family of nations as an equal, but as the founding document of an independent Irish diplomacy. The message stated that Ireland, quote, believes in freedom and justice as the fundamental principles of international law, because she believes in a frank cooperation between the peoples for equal rights against the vested privileges of ancient tyrannies, because the permanent peace of Europe can never be secured by perpetuating military dominion for the profit of empire, but only by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people. Thus, from the very beginning, the vision of the new republic was outward-looking, not only because it was vital to achieve international recognition, as I have said, for a fragile emerging state, but because the members of the First Thole recognised that as a small nation, Ireland could not stand back from the world, but needed to fully engage with other countries and peoples and emerging international institutions to ensure its survival and viability as an independent people. The Irish envoys were, of course, not the only advocates in Paris. They were part of a wider international effort that sought to assert national self-determination. Although they were refused formal recognition, Chantier Kelly and his colleagues continued to work with representatives of other nations that were seeking to assert their right to freedom and self-determination. The Irish delegates cooperated with the Egyptian delegate to the Versailles Peace Conference, Zaglul Pasha, in trying to influence the proceedings. And another young revolutionary, also in Paris that spring, Ho Chi Minh, petitioned the conference for the rights of the Vietnamese people, expressing his hope for, in his words, the prospect of an era of right and justice, although the aspirations of his people would not be realised until much later in the century. The freedoms that were allowed for discussion were limited to the realms of those seeking such within the defeated empires. Freedom for peoples caught within the maw of the victors were not for discussion. Unfortunately, like their international colleagues, the Irish envoys received a cold reception. Although the imperialist impulse had been discredited surely by the carnage of the First World War, its instincts re-emerged in Paris as the great powers reasserted again 
that very mode of statecraft which had failed in 1914. The opportunity presented by the vision embodied in the creation of the League of Nations was squandered as the great powers simply sought to carve up the remnants of the old empires that had disintegrated in the aftermath of the First World War. The results of that act of folly would contribute to slip to, to slip to the, would contribute to the world slipping into an even larger catastrophe twenty years later. There is a lesson in that failure, surely, a warning as to what happens when narrow and perceived immediate gains are put ahead of norms and nation when nations neglect to make international mechanisms work effectively for a different future or allow themselves to become detached from normative standards. The result for those following such an illusion is not necessarily greater freedom of national action but rather the risk of a journey down the darker paths of isolationism an aggressive and inward-looking form of nationalism, and for all nations and their people, it is the consequences, again and again, of an escalation of global tensions. Thus, in taking the message to the free nations of the world to Paris, that Irish delegation of a hundred years ago pursued a different vision of world order, one founded on international cooperation, based on the fundamental principles of democratic consent and sovereign equality and those values would continue to inspire Ireland's foreign policy and diplomatic practice. In that spirit, and pursuing these values, Ireland is now seeking to become an elected member of the United Nations Security Council in 2021. And we are seeking this role because we believe that not only is it important for the voices of smaller United Nations member states to be heard in Security Council debates, but because we accept our profound obligation as a member of the community of nations, to contribute to international peace and security. Ireland has consistently, I suggest, sought to live up to that obligation through our support for international peace, justice and the rule of law. This is given practical meaning, of course, through our commitment to disarmament, United Nations peacekeeping and our overseas development assistance programme. And thus, Ireland's bid for membership of the United Nations Security Council, I should say, is also part of our wider strategy to deepen our global engagement and to enhance its effectiveness through what we've announced as the Global Ireland Initiative. And I do welcome, as President, the government's commitment to build new partnerships with countries where we do not have official representation and to deepen our existing partnerships by strengthening and expanding our network of embassies. Dear friends, there is for all of us a worrying sense of shadows that are gathering in the wider international context and in relations between states. The world faces unprecedented challenges. Some states are resiling from commitments solemnly made and recorded. In some cases, they are seeking to return to the old politics of perceived bilateral advantage, which have had such bleak consequences, including in the last century. And then the diagnosis of the problems we all face is reasonably clear, even if many states don't agree on the remedy. The increasingly interlinked nature of the problems at global level is obvious. Climate change, inequality, poverty and deprivation. 
the impact of new technologies such as artificial intelligence on employment, migration and population flows, transnational crime assisted by technology, terrorism, the need for a fair global trading system that delivers prosperity for all people. They are all connected. And in denying that interlinkage and connection, we are in so many ways being obdurate in the face of what we know to be our failures, and yet we refuse the possibilities of alternatives to emerge. We seem to lack a transcendental sense, and the result is a sense of alienation in our reverence, in our insistence of continuing what is failing. For these problems are what the late United, what the United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan described as problems without passports, because they affect us all and future generations and show scant regard for the limitations of natural borders. When I spoke to the diplomatic corps, to all of you in 2000, some of you would be here in 2016, just three years ago. We celebrated two great achievements, the United Nations-sponsored agreements in New York on sustainable development and the Climate Change Agreement in Paris. It was more than a moment for optimism. It offered a sense of a great cooperative necessary project to the world that might be got underway. And yet, in his address to the United Nations General Assembly in 2018, Secretary General Antonio Guterres highlighted how the world is suffering from what he called a bad case of trust deficit disorder, in which people feel troubled and insecure and are losing faith in their own political institutions and the rules-based global order. He recalled how cooperation between countries is less certain and the divisions in the United Nations Security Council have become starker. And while multilateralism, after all, may be sometimes criticised as overly complex and incapable of delivering results, the Secretary General reminded us of the achievements of multilateralism in fostering peace, defending human rights, driving economic and social progress for women and men everywhere. It is essential, surely, that we strive to engage our peoples in achieving projects that are now ones of survival itself in biodiversity and planetary terms. And our peoples are asking us in their own way, they're seeking authenticity in our words and actions. And I think, of course, concourse between nations is never merely a matter of diplomatic links purely at the level of the state. It is richly expressed in international networks of solidarity, of solidarity and support. We recognised this in Ireland early, a hundred years ago. No better example of this than the story of another Irish delegation, too often neglected, who did achieve a measure of success in promoting Ireland's cause in 1919. In February of that year, the Irish Trade Union and Labour Movement nominated Tom Johnson and Carl O'Shannon to attend a meeting in Bern of the Social Democratic Parties of Europe. The delegates assembled in Switzerland sought to re-establish the Second International sundered by the First World War. That conference, unlike the Versailles experience, did recognise Thomas Johnson and Carl O'Shannon as representatives of the Irish Labour Movement distinct from that of Britain. Though they were formally speaking for Ireland, the two men were at pains to emphasise that they were bringing a message from their comrades, from Egypt into China and India, who could not attend. 
They demanded self-determination for all those countries based on a national plebiscite on whether to leave their respective empires. The reconstituted Second International would go on in April of 1919 to unanimously demand that the principle of free and absolute self-determination shall be applied immediately to the case of Ireland. This perhaps neglected incident in our history emphasises the emergence of the international trade union and labour movement as a source for peace and justice in the world in the past century, and it is an influence that abides today. <coughs> as the international labour organisation so often seeks to remind the world, there can be no universal peace without social justice. And is it not the case, however, in our times, one might ask, that this aspiration while given rhetorical support, is contradicted again and again by the failure to allow connections of social responsibility, cohesion, cooperation, and shared responsibility to come into being, flourish or be sustained between capital, labour, economy, ecology and ethics. The International Labour Organisation faces a constant struggle against its marginalisation in conditions of a growing, unaccountable sphere in its financialised global form of borderless capital. And as a planet, as a family of nations, we face new and neglected challenges. Persistent, growing inequality in wealth, income and power. Poverty environmental degradation, a loss of biodiversity, and above all, the catastrophic consequences of climate change. And in other years we have all agreed that these are challenges that we can only meet together and that we can only confront if we are willing to re-examine and change some of our fundamental assumptions. And yet we are not offering a response, the, that the, the response that the planet and our peoples need and which they must be encouraged and assisted to seek. I wonder, is Pope Francis' description of a culture of indifference not far from a description of where we are in our private existences and in so many places in public life? After all, last October, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report on the possibility of the planet meeting the pledge we made our peoples and to each other at Paris in 2015. It makes for stark reading, for it demonstrates that we have a very short time frame. The headline figure is 12 years. To act if we are to keep the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The level of climate change mitigation required to achieve that goal demands nothing less than revolutions in power generation, in food production and consumption systems, in our land use, in our transport planning and infrastructure, and in industry. And as expensive as all this might be for some, we must recognise that the cost of climate adaptation grows correspondingly higher with each temperature increase. If we're not to abandon vast swathes of humanity to repeated and deepening tragedies of climate change, we must act and now, and act quickly. It must be becoming clearer that the formal pledge we made at Paris of a two degrees Celsius increase in temperature above pre-industrial levels will be insufficient to save many nations from devastation. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Paris Climate Accords represent 
the two most remarkable successes for international cooperation and diplomacy in this decade. Together they provided the means by which we shall measure our success and failure in this century, and they are demonstrations of the possibility of global solidarity in the face of overwhelming challenges, and we cannot afford to let them be weakened, even abandoned. We have to accept, too, that beyond our generation's welfare, this is an issue of intergenerational justice. The outcome of the Katowice Climate Change Conference does give some further cause for hope, insofar as nations have agreed on the methodologies by which they will evaluate their efforts under the Paris Accord. However, some nations are now turning from the commitments they've made altogether, and some indeed are affecting a willful indifference to the overwhelming scientific evidence. I'm conscious that we in Ireland must do far more in our metrification efforts, and to do so at a far greater pace than we have hitherto. As the representative of the United Nations Secretary General said at Katowice, we must all demonstrate determined ambition, ambition in mitigation, adaptation, finance, technological change and innovation. So, dear friends, while we might even agree on the wider global challenge of what we face and the interlinked nature of new and existing challenges, climate change, environmental degradation and an equal global trading system, the overweening power of multinational corporations, there is no consensus yet regarding the underlying cause of those symptoms nor the proposed treatment. I think that, after all, falls to the realm of politics and will be a matter for all our citizens upon which to deliberate and debate. They need the pluralist scholarship to do that, a pluralist scholarship that can offer new paths to a sustainable, globally just future. They need options that are ethical, ideologically responsible. They need what was of assistance in great crisis of the past, an unbiased, informed media, free of monopoly, genuinely open to critical thought. They need institutions of education, free of the dominance of extreme market forces. And as we do so, it is vital that we maintain our commitment to the international institutions at the heart of our global political community. The global challenge of poverty, deprivation and inequality does remain a priority for Irish foreign policy, and I was pleased as President that the Government announced that it will shortly publish a new white paper on international development, which will reaffirm that Ireland will continue to seek to build a fairer world. It will restate Ireland's commitment to meeting the United Nations target of 0.7% of, of gross national income in overseas development assistance. But that new white paper will, I hope, clearly establish that we must all move on from those simplistic unilinear models of development and engage with a diversity of sources of wisdom, scholarship and research in building alternatives that will work. The new white paper will stress the urgent need to protect multilateralism, the role of the state too in new circumstances of challenges and technology, the unique role of civil society, and the important task of preventing the erosion of globally agreed norms and principles. Ireland's commitment to global justice and the rule of international law is not limited to our development work, which we see as vital. During my presidency, I have had the opportunity to witness the practical, dedicated and heroic work that is delivered in a professional manner and by Irish peacekeepers. And in doing so, they contribute to Ireland's reputation overseas 
and the maintenance of international peace and security. Since 1958, the Defence Forces have maintained a continuous presence on peace support operations. A remarkable record, and it is one of which we are proud of the courage, determination and professionalism of the members of the Irish Defence Forces who are deployed on operations in the Middle East and Africa, on missions in the Mediterranean, where every day they help save lives of those fleeing conflict or persecution. Dear friends, the European Union remains at the heart of Ireland's foreign policy, and since our accession in 1973, it has been fundamental in our thinking and in our national development. That bridge to the wider world has expanded the opportunities available to all Irish people, and the European Union has very often been the source of the articulation of new rights, the right to equal pay irrespective of gender, the right to equal treatment, expanded labour rights, Yet our European Union is now challenged by the erosion of, and indeed in some quarters, outright challenges to some of the fundamental principles and aims that underpin our Union. Social justice and social protection, solidarity between generations, economic and social cohesion, and solidarity between member states are all fracturing as member states in the union institutions themselves struggle to uphold these values upon which our union was founded, and for the first time a member state of the European Union has decided to leave, an eventuality once thought remote even fanciful. The decision of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union is respected, and particularly the intensification of events in Westminster in recent months has perhaps, I think, to some extent deflected attention from the necessity of our other debate here in Ireland regarding the future of our European Union. That debate is all the more important now, as we face into very important European parliamentary elections this year, elections that may prove a watershed moment in the life of the Union. Last January, I made my own contribution to our national debate regarding the future of Europe. I posed a number of questions which I thought were critical to any envisioned or planned institutional change. Can the macroeconomic framework of the European Union sanction and protect a diversity of models, both in terms of welfare states and alternative economic models? Can the formulation of monetary policy be accommodative of such difference? Can the rules of the internal market yield where they can and surrender, when they must, to the demands of labour? I'm not sure that we're any closer to resolving the institutional problems at the heart of our union, or what has become a clash between our fundamental values and principles on the one hand, such as solidarity and commitment to social justice, and parts of what might be called the economic constitution of the union, which has emerged and is embedded in the treaties. The spokespersons for the macroeconomic institutions of the Union too often seem to be holding the view that economic and fiscal complexity is beyond the comprehension of our European citizens. Such an approach is delivering a negativity to the European street, continuing to divide rather than unite, leading to discord between member states and the institutions, all of which serves only to frustrate citizens who had been looking to the Union to vindicate those values and objectives for which the Union itself was brought into existence. The voices of the European street are called for a Union pursuing equality, offering prospects for a decent life, for cohesion, and not for the continuance and projected performance of any 
patchwork of inequality defined by the economic strength of the few and the accepted weakness of the others. There are opportunities that have been missed by a concentration on the impact and the needs of what is perceived to be a global financialized economy at the cost of social cohesion. After all, one of the most innovative features of the Maastricht Treaty was the establishment of a Commission of the Regions, which consists of the elected representatives of regional and local governments. That was one, perhaps, of the neglected inheritance of Jacques Delors. It was part of an expansive vision for the Union. We should, I suggest, raise again the importance of regional policy within the European Union, not only in terms of subnational governments, but in terms of regions and nations with shared challenges. Is it possible to provide regions with the benefits of the Union while recognising diversity in terms of economic and social structure? For example, can subsidiarity not be defined positively rather than negatively? Yes, it is possible, and in doing so we would be acknowledging demographic, social and economic differences while still living within the treaties. Our solutions are in the realm of politics, and they are in terms of a a politics of engagement. If we need a recovery of regionalism and of regional planning, then surely we also need to recover for our shared future a discourse on the role of the state in allocating investment and planning for our future. Why are we not having a debate on the role of the state in appropriate and accountable partnerships as we face new shared challenges in utterly changed circumstances? In previous speeches, I have been frank in expressing my regret at the decision of the British people in 2016 to leave the European Union, although, of course, I respect it. However, I wish to reiterate today that however the challenge of Brexit is resolved, it will be more essential than ever in the years ahead to sustain and build upon the deep friendships which have, been grown, which have grown between Britain and Ireland and within our island, and to which I have a deep commitment. At this time, I want to particularly emphasise a key point regarding the Brexit debate. In the Brexit negotiations, the core aim of the Irish government in regard to relationships on these islands, an aim which I share, is to preserve the provisions and principles of the Good Friday Agreement. This is not a straightforward task, given the agreement was formulated upon the assumption of continuing European Union membership across these islands. As many of you who have crossed the border in your role as diplomats will know, it is no longer a physical barrier between the people of North and South. The removal of the border infrastructure and the reopening of border roads has helped open up a space where people and commerce can circulate freely and the possibilities of cooperation between the two parts of the island can be fully realised. And it is critical that this remains the case and that the barriers of the past which block those possibilities are not re-erected. The aim of the government has always been, as the Ulster poet John Hugh put it, to ensure that each may grasp his neighbour's hand as friend. The Good Friday Agreement thus represents a remarkable and sustained achievement of peacemaking and reconciliation. The agreement demonstrates that a shared commitment to universal human rights, to equal treatment, to parity of esteem, can facilitate the creation and enrichment of a shared space, one capable of accommodating different aspirations, one in which it is possible to imagine and shape a future of hope and possibility. And as we move forward in all the strands of our relationships, north and south, east and west, and in a wider European context, we must defend the achievements of the Good Friday Agreement.
In that context, we must remember also the social and economic dimensions of the agreement. They can be a powerful source of social cohesion, sustainable economic life. A durable settlement must encompass the right to decent work, to social protection, to security from fear of insufficient provision in health, housing and education, to ensure that there is no return to the despair and alienation which caused conflict in the past. Finally, dear friends, a century ago, the world had to deal with the consequences of classical great power diplomacy, the diplomacy of self-interest and of imperialism, which led to what the poet Thomas Hardy described as the breaking of nations. In our time, we've also witnessed the brutal consequences of the failure of diplomacy in Syria and Yemen and the collapse into chaos and violence of those countries. In Yemen, the United Nations Secretary-General has warned the world that 22 million Yemenis are in desperate need of humanitarian aid and protection. We've seen and read the bleak reports by our distinguished Irish journalist Ola Gaiden of the BBC and Declan Walsh of the New York Times. The United Nations in all of this needs our sustained support as it tries to bring an end to the conflict and to provide the necessary humanitarian relief to alleviate suffering, famine and deprivation. Ireland has provided ongoing support to relieve the terrible consequences of the conflict in Syria. Our humanitarian aid has exceeded €100 million, both as a practical measure of vital assistance and as an expression of our solidarity with the victims of conflict. We've welcomed displaced refugees, Syrian refugees, to Ireland. And it has been heartening to see how the generosity of the Irish people, as a migrant people, how it has been expressed in the warmth which those fleeing conflict has been greeted as new neighbours. At the same time, a sustainable political resolution is the only way to ensure a lasting end to the violence and suffering in Syria. And for that reason, Ireland continues to support UN-led efforts to end the conflict in Syria. The Global Compact on Migration, which was endorsed in December 2018, represents welcome progress in dealing with the challenges presented by an unprecedented level of migration globally. We must always place at the heart of our efforts to respond to migration not, not only in terms of the human dignity that is the entitlement of us all, even more so when faced with conflict and our suffering, but our commitment to a shared planet is tested by the nature of our reactions. And history would tell us truthfully our planet is a migratory planet. We must not turn our backs or shut our doors on people when they're at their most vulnerable. We are rather offered an opportunity for fulfilment, to experience a version of the best of our assertions as we welcome the other. And dear friends, in your own role as diplomats and representatives of your country, I know that you have an awareness of a profound responsibility to ensure that your leaders and legislators have the information, both truthful and accurate, that is critical to making the right decisions in addressing the global challenges that I have been mentioning and that we all face. It falls on our political leaders to take action. But as diplomats, your responsibility is to help interpret and make sense of the wider global context and complexity, not from a narrow sharing just of your colleagues' views, however valuable they may be, Political leaders must, for all our sakes, and for the sake of future generations, take decisions rooted in a sound understanding of the full realities of the world, and most importantly, 
the informed citizen of the global street. That is not always an easy task, a one that is without professional or personal risk, as I know. In his autobiographical meditation on the political crisis of the 1930s, Autumn Journal, the Belfast poet Louis MacNeice acknowledged the difficulty we all face in facing up honestly to the complexities of a rapidly changing and dynamic world. MacNeice reminds us, None of our hearts are pure, we always have mixed motives. As, uh, sorry, where none of our hearts are pure, we always have mixed motives, are self-deceivers, but worst of all, deceits is to murmur, Lord, I am not worthy, and lying easy, turn your face to the wall. We are all summoned not to turn away, but to face courageously into the light of the necessary future. We live in an age of rapid change that demands from all of us great qualities, maybe new qualities of energy, determination, idealism and optimism. So, dear colleagues, in 2019, we must keep faith with those ideals, not just imagining a better world, so that we can build upon the positive legacies of 1919, exemplified by the idealism of our diplomatic predecessors, as they sought to assert the universal rights to freedom and self-determination of all people. We, in our time, must guard against the mistakes of isolationism, any narrowly defined national interest that ignores our mutual obligations as inhabitants of our shared and fragile planet. I always wish you so well, all of you, in all of your work. Garimila Mahaki, thank you.